Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Project Zion podcast. For this episode, I'm here with Ron Harmon. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about an updated policy that Community Christ has been working through through the past four years about the use of intoxicants by priesthood members. Um, A while back in episode 83, and I'll refer you to that episode, Lachlan Mackay visited Salt Lake Community of Christ. And in our Sunday school, he talked about a little bit of the history in the 19th century and early 20th century about the Word of Wisdom in Community of Christ. I refer you back to that episode if you want more of the history of the turn of the century into the 20th century. But Ron, I'm glad that you could be with me tonight. I know your schedule's busy. Can you give us, our listeners, a little bit of a background about who you are? Sure. It's good to be with you tonight. So I um, have the privilege of serving uh, in the Council of Twelve. I serve the Western uh, United States field. And I uh, was called into the Council of Twelve in 2005, and I um, also uh, have worked on a number of other projects in Community of Christ, including leading congregations and mission, which I've also done a podcast uh, about. I live in Independence and uh, have uh, three children uh, who are all engaged uh, in the life of the church. They're all grown now, and. My wife works here in Independence as a, as a preschool teacher. So I went under church appointment in 2004, and it's been a real privilege to have the opportunity to serve the church in that way. Yeah, well, thank you for your service. I've been able to be at priesthood gatherings with you there, and it's been a privilege to be part of your ministry. So how did we get here? What led us as a church as far as intoxicants and how priesthood use them? lead to a new resolution and back in the 2013 World Conference? So we uh, have kind of had a evolving scenario, unfolding situation in the life of the church, particularly uh, in Western nations, where uh, the, the policy that we've had, which has been a policy of total abstinence, has um, increasingly been questioned by some uh, priesthood members. Uh, I think some of that is a result of some of our own uh, shifts in the life of the church in terms of maybe not looking at morality through such a rigid lens, but trying to understand the principles uh, that should define uh, our conduct as disciples and priesthood, and trying to find ways to live um, ethical lives that, you know, model the highest form and stewardship of wholeness of body, mind, spirit, and relationships. We have been aware of the fact that in some parts of the Western world, we have individuals that have not been in compliance uh, with the policy that we've had. And we've also uh, been aware of the fact that uh, this has been a topic of conversation for a number of years Uh, What really, though, initiated the study and the revision of the policy was World Conference Resolution 1300, 
the drinking of intoxicants, and it basically asked the First Presidency to provide some counsel regarding the uh, interpretation of 152, Section 152 of the Doctrine of Covenants, particularly as it relates to the consumption of alcohol and community of Christ's understanding of, of sin. It also outlined um, a request to the presidency and the Council of Twelve to review our current policy of complete abstinence from al- alcohol consumption and to consider whether we needed to revise the policy or confirm uh, the current policy and administrative guidelines so there's clarity um, and clear understanding of the expectations for priesthood throughout the church. So that led us on a multiple-year journey of exploring um, our current policy, but more importantly, exploring the nature of um, making ethical decisions and um, thinking about the relationship principles of Doctrine and Covenants, Section 164. Uh, The presidency did significant work on interpretation of Section 152 in its historical context. We had our World Church uh, Health and Wholeness team work on a statement uh, called Drinking of Intoxicants, and um, we also engaged in a lot of conversation um, over that period of time. Uh, The Council of Twelve and Presidency were in conversation. Uh, We had opportunities for education. Uh, on everything from ethics to uh, understanding uh, what the Bible uh, has had to say about alcohol consumption, uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, the Doctrine of Covenants, looking at this issue through um, the lenses of of how we discern God's will uh, that were presented to the church uh, by President Steve Vesey. So all of those things uh, over a multiple year period of time um, led us to being able to reach a high level of consent on the policy statement that we now have uh, for drinking of intoxicants, which is now, it is a global statement um, for the church. Maybe we can get into those six lenses you mentioned. There's some certain lenses that we take when we approach any issue that we have as a world church. I know traditionally people just look at scripture. What does scripture have to say? But we look at six different lenses where scripture is just one of those lenses. Right. Um, yeah. You know, we of course look at, you know, tradition. Uh, we look at our experience. Uh, we look at, you know, continuing revelation um, in the life of the church and, we um, look at the, you know, the process of common consent um, in the life of the church. So these are all kind of different windows through which we um, approach um, discerning God's will, recognizing that, you know, uh, revelation occurs through different means. Uh, you know, there's things revealed to us through our, our own tradition, but there's also things revealed to us in the community in terms of our own experience. and when we come together in community um, as opposed to just our own individual interpretations, um, we learn things uh, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, As we come together in community, uh, we 
often have new insights and new understandings because we each bring our own collective life experiences um, to the task of uh, important questions like this. So, Right. Maybe we should state right up front so it's not buried way back in the podcast somewhere what those policies are. We'll read the policies and then I have two policies in front of me. So the consumption of intoxicants by priesthood and then right. also the consumption of intoxicants at Community of Christ sponsored events and Community of Christ owned property. Right. So there is a, a new policy statement um, called consumption of intoxicants by priesthood um, that is now an official policy of Community of Christ. And the policy statement itself is actually quite succinct. Um, there's a lot leading up to that policy statement in terms of important principles that help to shape that policy um, and some important definitions. But the policy itself is simply for the well-being of individuals and the church community, especially the most vulnerable. Disciples and priesthood members are urged to refrain from drinking intoxicants. So that is that is the policy, and the uh, other policy with respect to uh, intoxicants, uh, consumption of intoxicants at Community of Christ sponsored events or on Community of Christ owned property is not a change in policy. Right, um, that has always been our policy, but it's a confirmation <laughs> of that policy that we do not allow uh, consumption of intoxicants. Um, on Community of Christ property or uh, Community of Christ sponsored events, unless it's being used for religious purposes, you know, such as, you know, like sacramental wine for communion. Which is pretty straightforward. Yeah, it really is. No, so the policy being that it's for the well-being of individuals and the church community, especially the most vulnerable, there's, it's spelled out pretty clearly what these definitions means like what is an intoxicant? What is the most vulnerable? And um, you want to go over that? Right. Right. So we, we define an intoxicant is any beverage that contains an intoxicating element like alcohol. You know, when we talk about the most vulnerable, we're talking about children and youth and um, people that would be prone to addictions or even, you know, those that may be recovering from addictions. Um, and, the other uh, important phrase that that we talk about uh, up in the in the principles and that we talk about in the specific application section uh, for each nation is this idea of um, a loss of power to minister effectively, which which is really a, an issue of credibility um, for the priesthood member if. Their actions with respect to the choices that they make result in their loss of kind of credibility and integrity in terms of ministry. Um, then that becomes um, something that we have to take a look at and, and potentially take administrative action. And that that's a community issue. So even in the United States, we have lots of subcultures. You know, I, I think everybody would not be surprised to hear that the United States is not a homogeneous culture. We have places in the United States where uh, the view of what it means to be, uh, to refrain from drinking 
might be more restrictive um, than other parts of the U.S. where what it means to refrain from drinking uh, may mean that the individual makes responsible choices with respect to drinking and does not um, abuse alcohol in any way or use alcohol to a level that it impairs their judgment or cognitive function as an individual. Right. So how I've had it explained to me in those areas where it may be a little bit more socially acceptable to consume responsibly is you better not be showing up as a priesthood member intoxicated while you're functioning (laughs) as a priesthood member. That would be a no-go for sure. But then absolutely as an example to other people, especially in a time of need when they would need you. Yeah, that's right. And and so the U.S. Um, specific application section in terms of how the policy gets applied um, specifically mentions uh, priesthood members who attempt to provide ministry or participate in the church uh, while they would be under the influence of, of an intoxicant. So that would be uh, a situation for us that would be pretty clear. Now, even in those situations, even in those situations, uh, Josh, our our first and primary concern is to provide appropriate pastoral ministry and, you know, to try to understand, you know, what's happening uh, that is leading that individual to engage in that kind of behavior. So, you know, our, our ultimate concern is for the health and and, you know, wholeness of, of the individual. But um, there are times where uh, we have to take administrative action because that individual has really impaired their ability to be able to minister in a way that would actually be accepted by the community of faith where they attend. The other um, situation would be in the U.S. where um, somebody's use of alcohol would negatively impact like their relationships could be their family relationships, relationships with others. It could impact their ministry or because of the fact that there may be knowledge that this person um, drinks alcohol, um, that it, it could actually impact the well-being of the community. I mean, there could be individuals in that community, for example, that are recovering from addiction. Right. So just looking beyond yourself, there might be instances where you as an individual may be making all the responsible choices in the world and you are not addicted to it. However, people in the community may know that you drink, use you as an example that should not be drinking themselves. Yeah, and, and in the policy, um, we've been very, in the application section of the U.S. policy, we've been very intentional in giving guidance to pastors that um, before administrative action is taken, they should always consult with the next higher level presiding officer because we recognize that we all bring our biases to this conversation. So, you know, uh, for example, you know, in um, my spouse's background, uh, in her family background, um, there's some alcoholism. And so, um, and I've seen the destructive impact Mm-hmm. Um, that abuse of alcohol can have. That's had an impact on me uh, and how I view um, the use of alcohol. Um, but I've had to step beyond 
my own personal experience and feelings as a church leader and be able to try to look at this in the broader context of, you know, there's a principle here, which is um, we understand sin not as viceless of things that, you know, here, these, you know, these, this is the list right. of all the things, but we understand uh, sin in the broader context of those things that separate us from God, one another and creation. Right. Um, and re- where we're really trying to encourage people to move both disciples and priesthood is to consider um, the implications of all of their actions, um, not just the use of alcohol. And that's where our enduring principle responsible choices comes in. Exactly. So I think with our, you know, the application section of the policy for the U.S. and specifically having the opportunity, there's some, there's a principle here in play, which is we're holding up a community ethic in everything that we do, even in the process of determining whether administrative action should be taken that's not being left to one individual's decision and perspective. Even that decision is being made by more than one person in consultation um, with one another. And we think that by doing that, um, we make better decisions. And so that, that provision is really important in the application section of the policy. I agree with that. Yeah, it makes the decision a little less hasty. It gives people time and then you have more than one person looking at the situation. So where you don't have somebody's priesthood stripped from them in one instance for a minor infraction, whereas somebody else is drinking regularly and nothing happens to them. At least that would be the hope that someone somewhere could be treated somewhat similar to another person. That would be the hope. I mean, obviously, you know, with this policy, um, there is the possibility of different interpretations mm-hmm. of what it, you know what it means uh, when we talk about urge to refrain. We hope that the application section of the U.S. Uh, for the U.S. with respect to this policy helps to make that more clear. But we still recognize that ultimately um, a priesthood member derives their authority from the institutional church. Uh, which in, which includes um, you know the calling process through the administrative line, but they also derive their authority directly from the people whom they minister to, and um, those two things are are both always important in a priesthood member being able to function effectively um, in their role and ministry, and so those contextual differences um, across the U.S are um, important um, for a priesthood member to to be aware of and to understand and to be able to evaluate how their ministry can be most effective in some of those different situations they may find themselves in. And that's that's just the reality of the world we live in. Mm -hmm. So before me, I have a pastoral letter on intoxicants, and I think we can go through it. We've touched on some of these things kind of on the surface level, maybe we can dig into a little bit more of how we got here. Um, So just to like recap, kind of what Lachlan Mackay has talked about is um, historically in community of Christ, we have a history of abstinence, like you've mentioned, and that came from the word of wisdom, which 
in the beginning was more about refraining from spirits, kind of alcoholic beverages that are high in alcohol, but it didn't specifically say other things like wine or beer. But then later on, that got interpreted as abstinence from everything that had any alcohol. And then uh, Locke talked about in uh, episode 83, for those that want to go back and listen to that one, how it kind of turned into you need to do this to avoid saloon culture. And it was more of a cultural thing that you needed to refrain from. But then throughout the 20th century, it was just abstinence completely for priesthood members. Uh, to set the example. And it was more of a, like you said, a vice list. You need to refrain from these vices as a priesthood member to set a precedence for the rest of the members. And leading all the way up to 2013, we've seen kind of a the policy of, I would say, yes, you need to abstain in all instances. However, it was more of like a, I don't ask and you don't tell and it led to kind of a secrecy culture where some people were consuming and then you have other areas that are, are in more of obeyance of still being abstinent. And uh, so there's this pastoral letter that was written because of this WCR. What does that stand for? World Conference 13, Resolution. World Conference Resolution. Yeah, 1300. Right. And, and part of World Conference Resolution 1300 was also rescinding General Conference Resolution. 297. Okay. And that was, you were referring to that, Josh. 297 basically said, inasmuch as some of the members of this church are in the habit of visiting saloons mm-hmm. and drinking intoxicants, so you can kind of tell about what time this was written, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which habit seems to hinder the spread of the work. Therefore, be it resolved that it be made a test of fellowship for any member of this church who will persist in this practice. So what the World Conference said is we're not comfortable um, with this being a test of fellowship. And I I think that's an indication of how church members, um, at least those that were represented at the World Conference, um, how our understanding um, has kind of evolved um, on this topic over time. Right. So I'm just going to read a few of the highlighted parts that I went through that I thought was the most important as we go through this pastoral letter. And I'll have you just comment on it. It says WCR, so World Conference Resolution 1300, was submitted because of the growing trend of priesthood members drinking intoxicants in many Western nations. Inconsistency in upholding policy resulted in a lack of clarity about the longstanding policy a priesthood not drinking intoxicants. In other non-Western nations, there is a clear practice that priesthood and members do not drink intoxicants. This is a justice issue because of the severe economic, physical, and emotional hardships that impact families, especially women and children. I saw that specifically in Mexico, where some of the men would take all their earnings, not leave anything for the wife or kids. and be passed out in an alleyway somewhere so that's right yeah absolutely and um you know the interesting thing about the whole conversation that we engaged in um together in world church leadership council which um for our listeners world church leadership and council would include the first presidency uh presiding bishopric council of 12 um presiding evangelist 
uh, and uh, director of human resource ministries. I think I've in the world church secretary, <laughs> I think I've got, I think, I hope I didn't leave anybody out. Yeah. Um, but you know, one of the things that is clear in the work and study that we did is that, you know, Western nations tend to focus, place a high value on individual choices. Mm-hmm. Whereas other cultures, um, there's more of an emphasis on community well-being, what's in the best interest of the community. And so this this is an area, Josh, where um, this is part of the value of being a global faith community. This is where um, different cultures influence each other. Mm-hmm. And we come to a, a richer understanding of what it means um, to live out the gospel um, globally um, as a church. And, you know, I think we recognize in the U.S. that, you know, we we can't just look at this from an individual perspective. We have to look at this from a community perspective as well. And some of our brothers and sisters in other nations um, have really um, helped us, I think, in the Western world um, to see the importance of holding up that community ethic as uh, a key lens through which we look at an issue like this. Right, for sure. And it says, um, to go along with what you're saying, community well-being promotes the physical, spiritual, and relational health of all. This means giving priority attention to the most vulnerable in our community. The most vulnerable are children, youth, and those impacted by addiction and other disabling factors who are easily influenced by the behavior of others. Yeah, I, I agree with you that the value of being a w- world church is that we do get to be in conversation with countries that don't always bring our values that, or have differing values and have different insights because of those values. Yes, absolutely. And and that was very helpful in this in this process as well. So part of the World Conference Resolution 1300, Drinking of Intoxicants, they also asked for an interpretation of Doctrine and Covenants 152.4b. Mm-hmm. Can you go over why 152 would be brought up as a scripture that would be of concern for reinterpretation or just asking clarity on what it means? Well, Section 152, which um, was um, shared with the church by W. Wallace Smith, specifically listed, and it, and it did it kind of in that that uh, same kind of mode of a vice list. It listed things that it uh, referred to as the grosser sins of the world, mm-hmm. uh, and alcohol was one of those. And so, since one section 152 um, specifically referenced alcohol, uh, as, as did uh, section 119, and of course, we already talked about section 86, the word of wisdom, mm-hmm. uh, Section 119 um, talked uh, about not being addicted to strong drink in any form. And really, uh, Section 152, in some respects, uh, even came out with a stronger statement, um, you know, about that being one of the the grosser sins. And, and then there were several other things that were listed um, as well. And so really what the First Presidency did was they... They took a look at Section 152, what was brought to the church by W. Wallace Smith. They also, uh, our church historian at the time, Mark Shear, uh, did some work on um, 
kind of the, the context that led up to that revelation being brought to the church, including um, a sermon that W. Wallace Smith gave at that world conference that year um, and uh, did some significant uh, work and analysis on 152 in the broader context of what is the journey that we have been on? What is our understanding of the nature of sin uh, in community of Christ and how has that evolved and, and how does that impact the conversation we're having about the use of intoxicants? So obviously, right now, we're looking through our scriptural lens in terms of those six lenses. Right. And it's the part of the role of the First Presidency to be interpreters um, of Scripture. And so uh, they are the ones that did some of the work on looking at Section 152 both in its specific historical context and also how it fits with what the church is evolving um, understanding um, of the nature of sin has been. And, you know, where we, where we ended up is an understanding that alcohol as a substance is not inherently sinful or evil. Um, how we use it can be right how we exactly it's how we use it uh can contribute to you know alienation from from god and others you know from yourself and and that really um is kind of what i would call a, a broadening understanding of the nature of the human condition that um goes much broader than just trying to come up with lists of do's and and don'ts uh, in terms of how we understand human sin. Right. So it, as they bring this up, they just go over and say scripture sometimes uses an approach called vice lists. And you, you see it in the writings of Paul too, where you just start That's right. a list of things. And this is usually a rhetorical device used to emphasize how pervasive sin is as a human condition. What we should not do though with these Vice lists is use the list as a checklist. Just understand how the scripture is being used. That's right. That's right. Because what we end up doing is we we end up with a we end up um, trying to impose a rigid moralism, mm-hmm. um, and we begin to interpret what it means to live out our Christian discipleship um, with lists <laughs> as opposed to understanding Christian discipleship through the lens of grace. And um, there's been a lot of harm done in uh, Christian history when we've uh, taken the route of, of kind of legalism uh, versus understanding um, the spirit and the principle behind uh, what it means to, to live out our discipleship in a holistic way. Exactly. And just one of the examples that come to the top of my head when people use these vice lists as kind of like a battering ram over people's heads is it's through these vice lists that people have historically used the Bible to denounce gay relationships. A lot of abuse has happened to those that are vulnerable that have different sexual orientations than those of the rest of us. Yeah, whether it's slavery or whether it's women or whether it's the LGBT IQ community, you know, 163, the Doctrine and Covenants for us um, very specifically says that Scripture should not be ever used as a tool 
um, to devalue any group of people. Right. Uh, and, and that takes us away from the, uh, the legalism to saying, to understanding, how do we understand these scriptures through the lens of the life and ministry of Christ and the kind of grace and uh, the worth of persons and um, whole life discipleship that Christ called people into in terms of his vision of the kingdom. Exactly. So like beyond just the legalism, you have to ask yourself, like, what's the spirit of this? Like, what is the deeper purpose? What would be the reason for the application of this? And uh, Well, yeah. And, and, and the presidency in their analysis came to the conclusion that the main theme, the main idea of 152, um, particularly the, that section 4B that mm-hmm. has that vice list in it, is um, really about, it really was about a, an invitation to a relationship with God, a covenant relationship that would lead one to, you know, healthy, holistic relationships. So when you step back and, and you look at 152, uh, beyond just that, that vice list, you recognize that that section is an actual invitation to a covenant relationship um, with God that leads to wholeness and well-being. And you could say the same thing about um, the writings of Paul. In the places where Paul used vice lists, he wasn't referring to the specific sins that he was uh, outlining as much as he was inviting people into the kind of relationship that doesn't alienate them from mm-hmm. God another, but leads them, you know, into a life of wholeness and well-being. So section 152 was important uh, for us in terms of the presidency um, doing, you know, some significant work there in looking at um, that particular section because it did come out, there was some some fairly uh, decisive language in that section. And, um, but they took the you know the approach that we always try to take, which is it has to be understood in relation to other scriptures, world conference resolutions, and ongoing theological reflection. Which you know I should mention that the church's uh, theology team uh, was very engaged in this process uh, with us as we looked at these scriptures and as they tried to help us to take a broader understanding and perspective with respect to the intent of these passages. So scripture is just one of the lenses and I think we kind of covered it. So the Bible, their determination of all the scriptures found in the Bible is um, alcoholic beverages have not always been a test of fellowship throughout the Bible. In some instances they drink it in other instances it's forbidden and then we have our own scriptures, like you've mentioned, and then all the way up to 152. But then there's other lenses that we interpret God's will for the church. Uh, one of the second lens that they bring up is knowledge and reason. And I right. guess uh, you said the theological team would also be using knowledge and reason as a lens to that's right how we'd be reflecting on this. Yeah, and of course, engaging the... Um, engaging the uh, World Church Health and Wholeness team, um, mm-hmm. you know, and asking them to look at uh, use of alcohol was another way that we engaged knowledge and reason. Exactly. So we can look out beyond just our church community and the people that are in it and look at broader culture 
in broader society, yeah. members in that society. And uh, I think it was the World Church Health and Wholeness team brought up the fact that there's a genetic play to it. And in general population, 13% of people who regularly drink will become alcoholic. And they just had some other findings that went with that. So that would be all part of uh, the knowledge and reason of just looking at broader culture and what these practices in the broader culture show us. That's right. And, you know, personal and community experience uh, is one of the lenses. And honestly, that's the one that's most challenging to us because uh, the church is obviously um, established in very different cultural contexts around the world. And what are considered um, cultural norms in one place, those things are considered absolutely unacceptable um, in other places. And, um, and it's always a challenge, um, you know, to step back and ask ourselves, um, you know, are we applying the gospel faithfully to these contexts or are we allowing the culture to dictate the gospel, <laughs> which is which is not what we're wanting to do? Um, you know, we recognize that um, you know, kind of the living word has to become flesh in every context, and um, that process of interpreting the gospel and living the gospel in very different cultural contexts around the world is one of the most challenging things that I think we do in community of Christ and try to hold all that intention uh, as a global faith community. And uh, which frankly is one of the reasons we have a very short actual policy statement, you know, that we read it, talked about at the beginning of the podcast, Uh, all this other stuff surrounds Mm -hmm. that policy statement. So there's pages and pages here of principles and, and, you know, health and wholeness committee statements and, you know, interpretations of section 152, a lot of really, really good work. Um, But when it came right down to it, policy statement itself is fairly simple, but then how that policy statement gets applied in various cultural contexts then becomes the more challenging part of the conversation. Right, and of course, the the first presidency is the is the uh, the point of continuity um, between all of those different cultures because the first presidency is the one that has the really the ability to have a global look at the church and um, along with those cultures and being in conversation with those cultures can uh, make sure that we are being faithful in interpreting um, something like this policy uh, in a way that um, is consistent with the intent of what the policy is in that context. Exactly. So one of the other lenses that it brings up is tradition. Yes. No, I was just going to say I, that's uh, our uh, tradition um, in community of Christ, you know, early on was obviously very much impacted by, what was happening in the United States and the temperance movement. And, um, you know, Locke referred to that, uh, that whole saloon um, culture, right. In his, um, podcast that he did. But I think that, you know, there's also the, the reality that there's a, there's an RLDS, um, tradition for us that was a particular way that we looked at things and that we looked at sin 
um, and our understanding um, over time has evolved. And we are a people that believe in continuing revelation and that God uh, reveals God's self through all kinds of means, um, including culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our understanding uh, over time has really evolved with respect to, you know, how we speak about sin, how we understand sin. Um, and I think it's moved from, a, you know, again, from a, a more leg- rigid legalism or moralism to one of understanding, look, looking at it through the lens of what does it mean um, to live um, a life of wholeness um, that is one which respects the worth of persons, that upholds the most vulnerable in our midst, and that also helps to lead others um, into a life of wholeness and well-being. And how can we make responsible choices in our lives that help model, you know, the highest stewardship of body, mind, spirit, and uh, relationships. And uh, and of course, right. section one sixty three holds up that holds up that really important dimension of priesthood ministry, uh, and 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 that's a much different focus than focusing more on the legalism and the moralism. Exactly. Yeah, in our tradition. Like you said, we've been moving slowly away from like using checklists and legalism to one that's theologically more embracing of grace. That's right. How would, so another lens is common consent. How would common consent be a lens through which we would view this? Yeah. So we we talked a little bit about that um, because we talked about the um, there's kind of this create, I call it a creative tension. Um, Sometimes it, it, sometimes it may feel um, not creative. It may feel like just like tension (laughs) that exists uh, with a worldwide faith movement where you have people coming together with very different cultural perspectives on issues and how do we move forward as a body and remain faithful to our best understanding of the cross-cultural universals of the gospel, particularly as it's expressed through the restoration movement in community of Christ. And, um, you know, so common consent um, for us is really kind of a recognition that sometimes because of our diversity, there is no single policy um, that can work for us in the life of the church, that sometimes what we have to do is we hold up the principles that directly relate to the gospel and uh, our enduring principles as a faith movement and and call us into that kind of faithful response to the gospel. But how those get applied in terms of specific policy uh, sometimes does have to differ um, by different you know, cultural context around the world. And um, so that in some ways, I think, is also something that is a little bit, rel- it is a little bit new for us. You know, I think the um, national conferences that we have had uh, related to the issue of marriage and ordination for the LGBTIQ community was really um one of one of the first times that we really um, recognized that 
that principle was going to be very important for the church moving forward. And, and section 164 provided, made the provision for that, uh, for us to continue to move in that direction for those types of issues uh, in the life of the church where, where that's needed. There are times where we can have one policy um, in the life of the church and it, we can apply that um, across all cultural contexts, but um, there are times because of, how the how we live out the gospel in, in different contexts and and how we kind of progress through our understandings and our traditions with our own cultural understandings and norms where um, policies may have to look a little different in different places. But we continue to point to the same global vision uh, and understanding that's moving us closer and closer um, to Christ's vision of the peaceable kingdom for community of Christ in the world. Right. So the last lens is continuing revelation, and you brought that up already with section 164 and our evolving theology of of looking at lists to being more open to grace. Section 164, it says, reframes healthy relationships in terms of love, mutual respect, responsibility, justice, covenant, and faithfulness. By analogy, it is better to think of discipleship and priesthood not in terms of what one must avoid, but in terms of what promotes health and well-being for individuals and the whole community. And I really think what you just read, Josh, is is really kind of um, is a is a wonderful capstone of our whole conversation um, because that that really is where we are today. That is our understanding, and that understanding has come about as a result of our experiences in multiple cultural contexts throughout the world and the process of continuing revelation. And one of the things I really appreciate about President Vesey is uh, revelation does not just come to him um, in a closet somewhere in the temple (laughs) in independence. Uh, Revelation for Steve is an ongoing process that it occurs as he travels around the world and is in dialogue with the people of the church. And sometimes I think some of Steve's most profound insights come as he has the opportunity to uh, press some of these questions um, up against how um, he has the opportunity to experience the gospel lived out. Um, in these different contexts. And I think because of his, his understanding of revelation in that way, I think the church has really been blessed with paths to move forward through some very difficult issues that have ended up blessing the church as opposed to dividing the church. Exactly. That's what I was gathering while I was reading through all these documents is here we have something that's very complex. It differs in every culture how do you work with something so complex and just not blast people out of our community by offending them so badly with something like this? Um, well, I want to thank you for our conversation. I'm just going to read the policy again for the well-being of individuals in the church community, especially the most vulnerable disciples and priesthood members are urged to refrain from drinking intoxicants. And I'll be sure to, find those links for you and make it easier if you want to just leave maybe whatever app you're using to listen to this episode and actually visit the website. I'll have those links available 
before you posted. You can download the PDFs and read them yourself if you want to dig into this a little bit deeper. Yeah, and I, you know, I think I would just kind of maybe end by saying that what we're really encouraging disciples and priesthood members, I mean, this is a priesthood policy, but um, priesthood emerges out of discipleship, and, and disciple is really the most important role um, in the life of the church. And we're asking disciples and priesthood alike in the U.S., which is, which is a nation that has been built on this idea of rugged individualism, to consider a deeper community ethic mm-hmm. um, and making decisions, not just decisions about the use of alcohol, but decisions um, about all the actions that we engage in and what is their impact on other people. And how do our decisions either lead people into wholeness or well-being or potentially put people at risk, um, particularly those that are most vulnerable? We always first ask, what is in the best interest of the overall health and wholeness of the relationships that we share in or the community? And I think that if, if we keep that in front of us, which is deeply tied and embedded in our identity as community of Christ, I believe we'll find ourselves making good decisions um, and being faithful to what it means to be a disciple in a changing world. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thanks so much, Ron. What you're saying has way more implications than what we're speaking about with just intoxicants. And culturally, in the United States, I wish for the greater society to put down their rugged individualism on a myriad of <laughs> other topics too that have been pressing against us lately. So, Yeah, that could be another three or four podcasts we could talk about. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, thank you yeah. so much for joining me tonight. I know your time is very scheduled out, and but I appreciate the time that you've set apart to talk with me tonight. Yep, it's good to share with you too, Josh. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use, and while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.